Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Aligning America. I'm your host, Vincent Miller, and let's get right into things. Our first story today is going to be rather somber, rather sad. It was a tragedy indeed. Eight dead at the hands of a gunman who accused those eight women, all Asiatic women, descent, either immigrants or first or second generation immigrants. They all worked at massage parlors and were accused of furthering one man's addiction to sex. I will not name him as I do not want to give him the recognition that he sought. However, he was caught alive and the police and specifically one police officer who, again, I will not name, had a rather egregious comment and reaction to the entire situation. Of course, these eight women were killed at their jobs by a man with an assault rifle. Uh, It was violent. It was brutal. It was disgusting. And the fact that he was apprehended peacefully and without conflict with the police seems to show not only, of course, highlighting again the racial disparities in the United States of America with that being an example in incredible contrast to George Floyd, who, of course, was arrested on charges of using counterfeit dollar bills and was murdered in the street in front of other people without resisting. That seems to show uh, quite obviously the differences between what is a, a white and a black man's reaction and the reaction there caused in entirely different crimes. Of course, the scale of this crime was disgusting and horrifying and and was an absolute crime against humanity. Though, of course, the officers who caught him, one of them who made the public statement done by the police, uh, he said it was a very rough day for, and I quote, rough day for the perpetrator, not not the victims. They did not speak of the victims. They spoke only of the perpetrator claiming that he had a rough day. That's disgusting, it's saddening, and it's it's quite honestly despicable. Though this should not surprise us, as further research did indeed show that that officer in particular had actually posted anti-Asian and even sold anti-Asian merchandise on his own personal Facebook page, which is questionable, of course, that the police officer's department would let him do such a thing and keep him on payroll. But of course, He is still on payroll, is still an officer at that department, and it it is rather disgusting. I'm not going to go into the specifics of what he said or what he did, but he he sold merchandise that was specifically anti-Asian in reference to COVID-19, claiming, of course, that they were the the problem, that they were the the reason that we were suffering from COVID-19, which, of course, is wrong, intellectually dishonest and stupid. But this, of course, this this event sparked marches and vigils all across the country to remember the dead and, of course, call for gun right restrictions in a a renewed and highlighted racial justice scope. When regarding the issue, you had many prominent uh, Asian-American figures, many prominent Asian-American activists speaking out during these marches, vigils and events, forums that were there to discuss the very same thing in mostly larger cities where There are larger Asian-American diasporas, though you saw it across the country and the sentiment held across the world. And of course, it does highlight what I think is an interesting, um, at least an interesting topic, an interesting discussion regarding and, and much like the Jewish community, I think the Asian community has always been held to a high standard because they've held themselves to a high standard, culturally speaking, uh, and they have shown great success in the American dream due to that. Uh, you could argue either overworking or overdisciplining of children, which again is is all not necessarily a, a definite thing. Of course, you cannot label a group as one thing. That those generalizations will never stick. However, economically speaking, they've experienced great success because of uh, personal cultural values, which have transferred across country lines to America when when immigrating to America. 
and and is shown. It is shown. This, of course, has now led Asian Americans to be at least viewed in many of the white people, white large ruling class. They have at least co-opted them into rather out of the minority sphere and have seemed to have given them honorary status amongst white people uh, in the same way that Jews went from a very disliked and a very unwanted minority group to that of uh, media moguls and and very prominent economists within the United States of America. This, of course, is something that changes with time and as groups and racial groups especially adapt to the United States and become more acclimated to the culture that a great American mixing pot does seem to adjust to those groups accordingly. However, we have seen uh, with groups like uh, Hispanic Americans and African Americans that that is not always the case. And systemic uh, tools can be used to oppress them for very, very, very long times, centuries, of course, uh, even without institutions like slavery and overt institutions like uh, discriminating at borders and whatnot. Though, again, it, it does does seem to highlight that though these groups have been co-opted and have very much seen success within the economic system of the United States, it does not always guarantee a civil liberties at least alignment with that economic success, even though they succeed economically, they do not always receive uh, either the respect that they deserve or even just the basic understanding that they are Americans and, of course, uh, are subject to bigotry and xenophobia, just like everyone else who isn't white. And of course, these things do need to eventually they should have been addressed many, many decades ago. And I think it has been a constant struggle for the United States to adjust and to, especially post-slavery, try and develop into a more civil nation uh, to ensure that those American liberties are extended to all walks of life. And they still, to this day, struggle tremendously, especially with minority groups such as Native Americans and African Americans. But it does highlight that some of these other minority groups that are not always shown as the poster child of oppression nor the poster child of bigotry can experience this. And of course, due to the COVID epidemic starting in China, um, or at least is believed to have started in China, it has shown that with the changing of times, with the changing of cultures, with things like a national pandemic, people can be scapegoated just as easily as they were 100 years ago in, say, Weimar Germany, with the, the Jews being persecuted there on a whim uh, as a scapegoat. And of course, that is human nature. And of course, of course that, that tribalism is so common even in politics today though we try and civilize it to a degree that it is unrecognizable on the same scale. Uh, it, it, again, is is just it is horrifying to see. And it is is definitely eye opening to realize that it only takes the drop of a hat. It takes one thing like a pandemic to entirely shift the winds in favor or against favor for groups like Asian-Americans who so depend and have lived for so many years in the United States uh, with relative safety and now are experiencing this hatred on a whim, uh, it is definitely eye-opening. And it's something that we all have to realize that it, it is truly a precarious situation when you have many cultures together and an uninformed population, uh, which, of course, is not everybody, though it is a large portion. I would gather some two-thirds of the United States white population hold anti-Asian or, or just generally xenophobic slash bigoted opinions, if not consciously, at least subconsciously. And of course, these things can be biologically diluted to that natural tribalism of skin color and that natural inclination to be with those of your own. But that is something that we will have to fight for decades and centuries to ensure that there is 
uh, civil equality amongst all races and amongst all walks of life, because that is what we should strive for. And so these excuses that people will make are nothing more than that. They are excuses and they need to be fought head on with primarily information and education and doing that not only from a young age, but continuously throughout your life is an important part of being someone who is open to recognition of these biases and to working actively towards fighting them. And again, that is, that is not to put a, a bow on the end of a terribly unhappy story, but rather a stark reminder that everybody, including allies or people who consider themselves allies of Asian Americans or African Americans, need to continuously remind themselves that there are very intrinsic things that they may take for granted, be it benefits or perceived negatives of other races that need to be combated at all turns and, and all times, because that is what will eventually be society's greatest achievement if we can truly and, and completely eliminate those biases from our minds uh, to make what is an actual equitable society. Moving on to our next story today is going to be about Hard stances on a very precarious geopolitical stage. Of course, we all know that the last administration with Trump at the helm has been very soft on the Russian equation in many spheres of influence, be it the Middle East or, or Western Eastern Europe. These things were taken pretty much at face value as back in 2016, he had announced that he wanted to be friends with Russia and that they were working towards being on friendlier, less icy relations and had taken a hard line against China. Now, fast forward to 2020, we had seen that play out that had pretty much stuck to his principles. Trump was right. He was friendly with Russia and very soft on China. That was not to be unexpected. However, we did see that Biden was under fire for possibly being too harsh on Russia and too nice to China. Well, that has all come to a head with some of the first diplomatic interactions between the two countries or, or rather the three countries after Biden has taken the helm as the new administration's leader. Uh, in the executive branch. And we've seen uh, a few things. One, yes, Biden has been very harsh on Russia, but surprisingly or not surprisingly, depending on who you ask, Biden has been incredibly tough on China just as a general rule of thumb, as I'm sure, at least if you're going to ask me cynically speaking, I believe it is in response to those accusations, not saying that Biden wouldn't have already been rather harsh on China, as I think that's a necessary step to take in geopolitics right now as they've presented themselves as America's number one enemy, maybe not combatively, literally. However, uh, at least certainly politically, uh, you do see dictatorships all across the globe. But China in particular has taken an anti-American stance anywhere, much like in the Cold War when the United States decided to be everything that the USSR wasn't. Uh, China has definitely taken that stance when it came to politics and investments on a global stage, investing largely in South American, Latin American and African countries, some also Eastern European countries such as the Balkans, in order to create a somewhat anti-U.S. pact, quite honestly, an anti-NATO pact in an alignment that is not unseen before, much like the Warsaw Pact was back in the 1950s. This, of course, is not me claiming there will be another Cold War or me even claiming that this pact is going to really amount to much. However, it has been in the making for the past 20 years with the Road and Belt Initiative that China has put on as they're trying to at least extend influence internationally. This, of course, has led to a few things, as in Anchorage, the United States. Recently, Chinese delegations met with the United States and they traded 
uh, some rather public barbs that were maybe not expected, but honestly not all that shocking. Chinese officials claimed that there was a strong smell of gunpowder and drama as U.S. officials took aim at the aggressive authoritarian nature of Chinese ruling in the past few years, which of course is not a surprise. We did know that there would be at least some anti-Chinese sentiment coming into those talks. However, it is definitely interesting to see as during that meeting, they if both sides accused each other of grandstanding for their own political gain, which, again, I think is rather obvious. Yeah, I do understand that it is beneficial to call your opponent out on grandstanding. But of course, they're going to grandstand. It's quite honestly all they can do because uh, short of a true uh, economic blockade or, or an economic trade renegotiation or uh, something as drastic as sanctions or something of the sort, despite without that. There really is nothing other to do than simply say, wow, I really don't like you guys. You guys suck. You guys aren't great. Uh, go home. Quite honestly, that is to be expected, especially with a few politically sore spots presenting themselves in the past few years, especially Taiwan, Tibet, Hong Kong and Xinjiang have all stood out as somewhat sore spots, especially with the Uyghur population in Xinjiang being prosecuted and being in at least allegedly prosecution camps and, and, and internment camps that were for re-education, which I think we've all heard that sort of diction before with flashbacks to 1935 Germany as sort of a terrifying reminder that that ideology of re-education and removal of culture from a greater unified culture, it still exists. And it is rather horrifying to see it be propagated in the modern day uh, especially in areas so remote that they cannot be monitored by international media as apparently and, and has been reaffirmed time and time again. The, the province especially has been incredibly cut off from international communications and many of those populations such as Kazakhs and, and Uyghurs have faced persecution for years and only now have been what is essentially been trying to be molded into Han Chinese citizens to fit in with the rest of the Chinese country. This, of course, is terrifying and what is naturally a crime against humanity. But there isn't much that the U.S. government can do except for sanctions, though I'm not sure that they would be willing to go as far as to sanction the government just because it would cause such an uproar in the international community. So we'll see how it plays out. But it definitely was an interesting display of two countries that quite honestly stand at the top of the international ladder and it would be interesting to see open conflict, not in a, a violent way, but just an economic and, and political way, though I, I can't see it coming to pass, at least not yet, based on current trends, as it would seem too volatile, especially given the COVID pandemic and a lot of international countries being on edge, especially as things like Brexit develop more and more. And the EU facing, of course, ever more problems, either administration uh, or, or just getting the countries to agree to, with each other. Uh, it's always been a hassle. So we'll have to see how it goes, though. Moving on to the other political opponent uh, would, of course, be Biden's accusations of Putin being a killer, as, of course, in an interview recently done uh, in 60 Minutes, Biden was asked if he agreed with the statement. And he did. He said Putin was a killer. Of course, Putin fired back, saying it takes one to know one pointing out that the United States had massacred Native Americans and had dropped two nuclear bombs on Japan as a sort of whataboutism, which, of course, is, again, quite obviously poignant as Putin is not even trying to defend himself, saying that he's not a killer. However, he is pointing out that the United States is almost just as bad, or at least in, in the eyes he's trying to make. 
what is interesting is that Biden had specifically said in this interview that the U.S. had rolled over for the Russian government in the last administration and he would not further that mentality, which is not surprising as it was what Biden had promised. And not only had he promised, it does create a very obvious distinction between him and the Trump administration, which I'm sure is what he wants. It is what he's looking for. And quite honestly, it seems to be working as he sits at a 55 to 60 percent approval rating. Granted, it is still during the honeymoon phase of that electorate favoring him. But if he kept those numbers up going into 2022, the Democrats would see a nice, nice sweep going into a very contested election. So we'll have to keep it up and keep up with it. Quite honestly, as it's a very volatile situation, we could always see changes, especially with places like Ukraine and especially with China and Xinjiang. We can always see changes on a on a whim. So we'll have to see as it develops. However, it does show that Biden will be sticking to his foreign, at least foreign policy proposals that he had pitched during the primary and the general election. And it does not seem like he will be backing down from those promises just as he has taken his third month in office. And for the final story today, we're going to be talking about Donald Trump, everyone's favorite president, and his possible return to social media. Now, this is interesting as it is, of course, it was, I should say, floated that he would be joining Parler or Gab or any of those sites. However, unlike Donald Trump Jr., who did indeed join those websites, Donald Trump did not, which I found a little bit surprising as I'm surprised he was willing to go without public attention for so long. However, do not be dismayed. He is coming back in two to three months. The second coming of Donald J. Christ in the Republican eyes, he is going to be returning. However, there are no details at this time about how open or exclusive it will be. And there were, of course, the possibility and, and a floated possibility amongst his administration or what is now the office of the former president, Donald J. Trump, possibility of a paywall function that was hinted at, uh, which would be interesting. One, of course, he would swindle thousands, maybe millions out of dollars that they do not need to spend on this. But not only that, it could possibly face similar challenges like Gab and Parler have in the past uh, with Twitter and Facebook basically monopolizing the market share with really no room for growth. You know, people are only willing to go to so many social media sites. And while that number of social media sites has expanded over the past decade or so, uh, I don't see how Donald Trump could, quite honestly, pull away people who are on Twitter or Facebook from those websites and then bring them on to uh, his own without some serious incentives, which I'm not sure how it would. It truly is uh, an interesting thought. He could perhaps pull on some pop culture figures and get them onto his site or, you know, exclusively onto that site comes to mind some people like Kanye who have shown sympathy for Trump in the past, though, again, when he ran for president in 2020, I'm not sure if that all fell apart. You could see any of those people uh, brought to that website and then maybe could spark some public interest. But uh, I'm a little bit skeptical. Let's just say that I'm a bit skeptical. And quite honestly, I don't see how it would work. Much like Gavin Parler, I've seen very little success in the past in comparison to those what are honestly uh, multimedia giants. It just seems kind of dumb to me. And I, I just kind of wish he'd, he'd give up, though. Of course, when he spoke at CPAC not so long ago, he did claim that he would be running in 2024. So we'll see how that shakes out. It really depends. And I can't see House Republicans or Senate Republicans aligning themselves with Trump again, just based on how much of a failure it was, though the thought does come to mind as if he runs and loses again, 
American populism, at least on the right wing, will kind of be dead. If that's a truly how it plays out, if he does win the Republican ticket and then run again, he has, of course, ruled out a third party run. I can't see Republicans ever aligning themselves with a, a strongman populist again, as it doesn't seem all that popular. And, and given the events, of course, on January 6th that went over so poorly with the general public, I cannot see Donald Trump leveraging any sort of support, uh, especially when questioned on things like that. I, I think he would crumble quite quickly on a national debate stage, but we'll have to see if he does truly want to return to the limelight or not. And honestly, it's all up to him how he wants to play it out, but it's a, it's a dangerous game he's gonna be playing and I can't say I'm, I'm putting my chips on his side of the board. Thank you for listening through to the end. We'd really appreciate it if you check us out at Aligning America on Instagram and Twitter. And if you really enjoyed it and want more content like this, be sure to head over to our Patreon to ensure we can keep putting out episodes, changing hearts and minds one podcast at a time. Thank you.